Hello, John. Good morning. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing? I'm I'm a little shaken, to be honest. Hmm. Nightmares? Well, Night terrors? No, I, I find it really disturbing when you climb into my tent without a word and just slip into my sleeping bag. Uh, it gets chilly, and uh, my tent is smaller, so. Well, still, you should at least, like, knock or, you know, you know, something. Just wordlessly slither in, take my body heat. I'll take note of that. Uh, next time I'll announce myself. What should I say? Just uh, man entering? Yeah, man entering sounds good. <laughs> I mean, a bear can't say that. <laughs> exactly. A bear okay. would say bear coming in. Right. Yeah, so uh, speaking of uh, bad sleep, I was tossing and turning, thinking about a movie that I had seen recently. Hmm. It was a sequel to another movie, which we have already discussed. So this is a, a hint. Well, do tell. Well, uh, I've got a few reviews, which I'll use to uh, get you to guess it. This is uh, mostly negative reviews, as I feel like most reviews are. Uh, here's the first one. It's hard to imagine even die-hard genre fans who adore the original having much to say. That's all that's positive. Sorry, I, I didn't read this right. It's hard to imagine even die-hard genre fans who adore the original have much. That's all that's positive to say. This is not my, this is poor writing. Uh, you get the point. There's nothing positive <laughs> to say about this unfortunate misfire. Uh, Robocop 2. No, that was a that was a, a, a perfect surgical strike of a sequel. It's self-aware of its zombie nonsense. Goes so far as to include some slapstick routines. Hmm. But this sequel essentially just repeats the plot from before. That's tough because a, a lot of movies do that. Yeah, and a slightly positive third review. The only saving grace in a totally misguided effort is oh. the performance of character actor Burns, who is quite funny as the slightly off-the-wall doctor. I would agree with that. And my guess would be Return of the Living Dead Part 2. You're right. You're right. Which had the same two characters, Ed and Joey. Same same two physical actors, but entirely different roles. And I thought that was very strange, just to start with, with that. That was my first... Sure, and I can give a little um, maybe framework as to the origin of this script and movie. The director and writer had this script already written and then approached to write a horror movie because that's the genre in which he found himself, although his preference was to write comedy. The production company said, you can make this movie if it is the sequel of Return of the Living Dead. So then he recalibrated the script a little bit to fit within that narrative and pulled those two characters from the previous movie to provide some level of consistency or connection to the original. The whole feel of the movie for me was uneven because obviously you, you want to get scared or grossed out or um, have that claustrophobic feeling of you know being trapped, but um, it didn't really have that. Every, everyone was... Even the zombies were kind of making puns and and uh, sort of crude, I don't know, body humor jokes and, and stuff along the way. And the doctor, his little kind of like 50s TV show, tongue-in-cheek puns were a big part of the movie. And mm -hmm. But other characters were totally not comedic at all, like the kid. And yeah, so it was kind of like a couple, the zombies and the doctor were providing like this running comedic dialogue but nobody else was it was just strange part of the point of 
discussing these things is to both get an idea of where the movie's coming from, but also where it's being generated from. So in, in the context of when it was released. So it was released in 88. And in 1988, there were some heavyweights that were released on the same year. You had uh, Hellraiser 2, Hellbound, 88 release. Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers, 88. Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood, 88. Was a good one. Yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Dream Master, 88. And then this movie. And right. and part of the reason for mentioning that, because I was really kind of turning the idea of how this was generated and why it was made and the comedic undertones, it just felt like a kind of an odd movie. And I think that it might have been trying to differentiate itself from the other horror movies and sequels that, that were being released and also kind of writing on the success of some of the adolescent hero type motifs. So you had mm-hmm. Goonies in 85, you yeah. had this two, these two horror movies, Monster Squad and The Gate, which were released in 87. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen those movies, but they kind of had this pre-adolescent, really. I don't know where adolescent ends, but eight-year-old, 10-year-old who becomes the hero of the movie. And I don't believe an adult would find that interesting. And so it's like taking, thinking about all the horror movies that are being released in 88 and how they're mostly consumed by maybe late teen, but more like early 20s type demographic. And so trying to put this movie in an area in which it would be successful might be, well, we'll, we'll get rid of the blood. We'll get rid of the nudity. I don't remember much swearing, very little swearing. And uh, not much violence in a sense. I mean, there was, but it was more gross out uh, kind of violence and try and push this movie more towards those that watched Goonies type of a thing. Yeah, that central role of the of the hero child, I, I, that's a good observation. I thought of like, yeah, that was another thing that stood out. Uh, kind of like, I couldn't think of Goonies off the off the top of my head, but that's a good comparison. Clever young boy is the one who takes the initiative to call in the army, their emergency number, and um, is very clever in all, all the ways that he manipulates people. And, and try, he, he's the only one with a level head and tries to call for help and and think of thinks of clever ways to thwart the zombie hordes. Yeah. And there's also a child zombie. His bully nemesis become is, is the first zombie. I feel like I haven't seen a, a child zombie before in one of these movies. So the the person that would find the most pleasure out of watching a movie like that would be a child close to the same age as the main character playing out those successes in their own mind, like driving the car at the end to save everyone and being able to stand up to a bully, like you were saying, and outwitting, you know, older people. Like these are things that eight and 10 year olds find fascinating and older people would find it obnoxious and annoying. So I do think this was pretty much written, at least with the intention that a 10-year-old or a 13-year-old maybe would watch it on TV or something like that. Yeah, and also having to maneuver around a, a babysitting older sister. Yeah, it's a good observation. I guess uh, I, I wonder, from a movie-making point of view, I assume directors have a date release date and they have a, a, a sense of what their competition in the movie theater will be. Mm-hmm. But, uh, to deliberately shape the whole plot and dialogue, 
I guess it makes sense that they would do that to differentiate their movie from the others that are going to release at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I did feel like it was a, it was it was driven by the effects studio. It it was almost like a show of prosthetics and uh, practical effects, and demonstrating that or or showing that in a way to seem impressive had more of a motivation than than I don't know other sort of plot elements. There was just an, an, a lot of zombies, which is you know, I guess good in a sense, kind of fits the idea of the aliens idea where you have one alien in the first movie, what would make the second movie more compelling? How about a bunch of aliens? And so how about a bunch of zombies? Not that there weren't a bunch in the first one, but even more and more mayhem doesn't necessarily make a better movie, but. No, there was definitely, you definitely had the feeling like it was a city full of or a community full of uh, zombies. I feel like some of the zombies were really good looking, like the lady who has the Southern accent and kind of makes the, the jokes she was, and, and some of the other ones were good, but some of them like the, the bully zombie, it seemed kind of lazy, lazily done. Like they just kind of painted his face gray and he didn't, he just kind of put on a, put on a scowl. Like if, and then there were others like that too, where it just looked like they were wearing gray makeup. But so it was kind of uneven. Like some of them looked really impressive and other ones looked like they just called it in. That young zombie, part of the reason why his makeup was less significant is early in the shooting, he was wearing the makeup and he got something in his eyes or something. (laughs) And uh, he then refused to put on the makeup again because it was to some medical reason or psychological reason. Mm -hmm. So this is definitely an obstacle movie where you have the cast trying to overcome something that's preventing them from being successful. And part of the difference between the first one and the second one is that these zombies can be killed by being electrocuted. In the original movie, no matter how much they were dismembered and taken apart and shot, they were uh, resilient. I don't, that's a little bit of a difference because, you know, at the end of the first one, there's this, everyone dies, nuclear bomb goes off, tragic event. In the end of this one, this plays into the idea of it being for a kid's kind of audience. They're successful. Everyone's happy. All zombies dead. Celebration time. Yeah. And the whole thing starts with a pot-smoking soldier who, I guess, because he is inebriated under the influence, he doesn't notice that one of the zombie barrels has fallen off his truck. Which I think you would... You would place that truck in the middle of the convoy or at its beginning instead of at the very end in case that did happen because they were just kind of the barrels were sort of lazily secured Mm -hmm. well didn't you used to do military logistics i did actually for uh for a short time right but uh yeah the the same theme in the in the first film of sort of a discombobulated um, army sort of screwing up again yeah those those were crazy days when i when I uh, served <laughs> in yeah. military logistics. Oddly for just a short while, too. They yeah, normally just really bring just... someone in for a couple of months and then and then discharge them. So. Yeah, I was dishonorably discharged pretty quickly. All right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I had lost too many zombies. So just the last piece of the framework of the timeline, Day of the Dead was done in 85, which was three years earlier than this, and Evil Dead 2 was done in 87. So there are two movies that demonstrate 
the ability to make a zombie movie, I wouldn't totally put Evil Dead in a zombie movie category, but close to, with success and Evil Dead 2 having some comedic effects done effectively. And so it's like, this movie, I don't think the comedic pieces were done effectively. I think that they were kind of forced in and they're a little goofy. The only piece that I thought was funny was when Ed, the grave robber, was holding the severed zombie head and then the zombie head bit his <laughs> finger. Like, the <laughs> And that has more to do about Ed and that character and that actor than the bit. The, the part at the end where uh, a Michael Jackson zombie comes out <laughs> when everyone's getting electrocuted and yeah. kind of gets electrocuted with them. It's like, that's where it feels very adolescent, where an adult, I think, watching that isn't going to find that very funny and it's going to look corny. And the other piece of it is the placement of it. I think that the comedy within a horror movie works when there's a bit of distress and then in the downtime, a comedic element that releases the stress so that you get back to a state of being calm or a state of being relaxed. And then the elevation of tension comes again. But to put the comedy right in the middle of the tension, it kind of spoils that peak. And it's just oddly placed. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. And uh, yeah, I forgot about that Michael Jackson reference. And there was that other scene too, where the zombies were in the house and they they collectively caught sight of the sister's aerobics video. Uh-huh. And were, I thought they were, I thought there was going to be a scene where they all lined up and did aerobics, um, but the, I guess I, I, maybe I blacked out or something. But I don't think that scene <laughs> ever ever was shown. But um, kind of a missed a missed opportunity for a dumb joke there. So I mean, in terms of the plot, it's like that review I read said it's essentially identical. The army loses a a barrel. The barrel is opened. Um, and then the, the, the mist goes into a graveyard and, and the dead awaken and they struggle and then they call the army and the army, what does the army do in this movie? They just kind of surround the city and don't really act. They, they prevent the heroes from leaving and the heroes have to resolve things at the power plant. But yeah, just kind of the same arc as the first movie in a lot of ways. I have, uh, one scene worth dissecting. Okay. It's good. I'm wondering uh, what that scene could possibly be. Actually. Yeah. It's a very small bit. There's a scene where Brenda and Joey, her boyfriend, boyfriend's turned to a zombie. Boyfriend's coming up to Brenda and the boyfriend's essentially saying, don't worry about being turned into a zombie. It's me, your boyfriend. It's okay. Yeah, that was weird. And then, yeah. And then he like bites into her head. And it appears that she has a pleasurable experience from that. I don't know if, what you took away from that scene. You know, she kind of has a the look on her face was sort of, yeah, either either interested or, yeah, but she does it sort of out of love. He says, you know, it's just me, and yeah, it's sort of she sort of gives herself up. Yeah, and so this got me thinking, and um, I don't know if you've heard this idea around why one should not fear death, and the line essentially goes. There's no reason to fear death because where death is, I am not. Uh, where I am, death can't be at. So death and I can never really interact. So therefore, there's nothing to fear about death. Have you heard that idea before? Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that is not significant enough, in my opinion, to describe 
the idea of death anxiety or fear around death, but it, it does have some level of maybe dissolving that fear because then you're not one-on-one facing death. But I don't think people consider it that way. I mean, this isn't Bill and Ted's bogus journey, you know? This isn't you're playing chess against the devil or facing him directly. Some Maybe people think that way. Maybe people think that they're on death's door, they're defeating death or something like that. But I don't know if most people feel that way. Let me give my version of that philosophical position and see if it's the correct one. Okay. Yeah, I I, I agree that it's it, it can be comforting, but in a it's it's overly logical. Like I think it's I think it's true um, if you if you look into it. But our fears about death cannot be assuaged by such logic. So like when I'm dead, the the reason I'm afraid of being dead now is that it'll be the end of all my projects and the end of all my relationships and the end of all my potential. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a terrifying idea. Cause I want to, I want to experience those things and accomplish those things. And the idea of it all just being over is unsufferable. And, and to, and because I can, I can mentally position myself after my death and, and, and mentally look back and, and the thought of it all just having, having finished without, without any ceremony or without any resolution or without it, or with many of my projects remaining unaccomplished. Um, that's just unacceptable and unthinkable, but ultimately when I am dead, there will be no reflection. I'll be dead. That looking back, which is unacceptable, ultimately never happens. So this, this fear we have about an, an unsatisfactory conclusion to all of our life's projects that retrospection ultimately never occurs. It could occur at the moment of your death, if if your death is long and drawn out. So I think it's the it's the dying that's the the truly really agonizing experience, not not the being dead itself. So does that is that a proper summation? There's a good summation, and I think that it does kind of highlight the difference between the fear is less about the instance in which. I'm combating death in more about the loss or the feeling of what I would act, was actually going at is the idea that you would be separated from all humanity indefinitely. So there's like this maybe severe FOMO where I die, everything else keeps moving along, and I don't participate in the rest of the world anymore, which is totally different than the idea of I don't want to have to face death as an object, as something physical or specific that I must combat in some way. And I think that that sentence of death can't occupy the same space as, as me plays into that idea that the biggest concern is death itself and kind of what you're highlighting. And I'm sort of suggesting with the loss of, of connection to people or the rest of the world is that it's less about death itself and more about everything that goes away with it. But back to the scene is that there's this other idea where people who are experiencing a funeral or are very near death have a high drive for uh, having sex, essentially. And so this kind of idea of being connected closely to people as, as in the most level of intensity as possible kind of fits into this 
where boyfriend is saying, hey, it's okay. Death is coming. I'm going to be here with you. It's okay. And then she has this sort of orgasmic experience when he's like killing her. And that would be a way of differentiating from death. So I'll take that sentence and kind of reconfigure it and sort of say where death is, sex is not. And where sex is, death can't be. And that speaks more to the connection of interpersonal or the connection to people drives away death anxiety. I didn't interpret her facial expression as orgasmic. Mm. I, I, it struck me as like she had an itch. That was, that was the look on her face. <laughs> or she was sort of curious. I, I didn't read anything overly uh, orgasmic about Mm, okay her, well her, but, yeah i don't know um yeah i don't know what that scene was trying to get at if anything um it, it was unique in the movie in that uh she essentially gave herself up to be eaten out of love um i don't i don't uh see the deeper uh philosophical posture there personally right I'm sort of saying death comes projects sad, but loss of the ability to connect with other human beings and be a part of a larger society forever, much more catastrophic. And so in this particular scene, the idea of her continually being connected to her boyfriend gives sufficient reason to where death isn't as a burden, because if I can always be with my boyfriend, then uh, death isn't as consequential in a sense why does she before she gives herself up to be eaten then flee from her boyfriend and struggle and try to not die well there's the struggle that no one wants to easily give up to death but under guarantee of always being with somebody it makes it a little bit more i wouldn't say appealing but you might accept it more if all other options are gone. So she, she had run away. She had tried to defend herself against it, put the struggle up and was fatigued by it. And at the end was willing to accept it under the conditions that, well, at least I'll be with my boyfriend forever. Hmm. I don't know. Interesting idea. There's also the scene where the bully eats his mother's brains. So sort of, there maybe there's something else in this movie about loved ones, e eating the brains of loved ones. You could go straight on to the Freudian piece there, where, okay, let's... <laughs> where uh, yeah, eating, I'm, I'm essentially uh, finding sexual satisfaction, or my interest is to connect with my mother in that way, and... This sort of is the symbolism of that. Um, not to necessarily try to divert our conversation, but the uh, in the first return, the zombies ate brains in order to relieve pain. These zombies did not seem to suffer as much as the zombies in the first movie, and their desire for brains was left unexplored. So maybe... Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to do with your 
your thesis here, but perhaps if their if their desire for brains were left intentionally vague, unlike in the first movie, it opens the door to such interpretations as yours. It's a stretch. <laughs> but I, I I didn't see the I didn't see the the orgasm face. I didn't see um I think the mother's face too was just kind of like confused. She she didn't submit herself. She was just giving her son a hug and son leaned over and yeah, I don't know. I mean, if we're really getting into it the the Oedipal sort of complex the the mother isn't a participant. She's more of a I don't know. She's just a, I wouldn't call it a victim, but she, she doesn't have a motivation in it. It's only the child that does. So her neutral neutrality wouldn't necessarily discount that idea, but. And the hero child, um, Jesse, his parents are missing, absent from the whole movie. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's free to act and able to self-differentiate and, and combat evil as a hero in a way that these other males aren't. Is that mm. is that Freudian enough for you? Or is that <laughs> is that Joseph Campbell Jung soup good for you? I I appreciate the uh, the investigation to that possibility, uh, but uh, I mean he is becoming his own adult, and uh, his parents are largely absent. And uh, are forming a a ideal more than an actual presence, and he is trying to fill the vacuum of that. That was my takeaway from the movie for sure. <laughs> and the other, uh, like Joey and Ed, the the actors mainly just screamed and pouted. You know their roles, like those two characters after after they see the dead rising when they're when they're robbing the graves they really just whine and and hop from foot to foot and just sort of pout all their lines after that Mm -hmm. so sort of acting by by whining acting by crying seems to be their their dialogue so perhaps a contrast a foil to the more rational and planning young young hero mm-hmm. yeah yeah and and those characters not to take away the function that they serve but on a in the mechanism of it they were added as as afterthought so that there's a connection to the first movie yeah they, they didn't really precipitate any part of the plot like the 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 zombies were released from the barrel through the actions of the boys and their little trip to the mausoleum, Joey and Ed seemed, yeah, in that sense, sort of totally optional. They didn't cause anything to occur. So, yeah, I see what you might, the, the way they might have just been overlaid, perhaps uh, to keep it more comedic by this director's attempt to make it more of a comedy. Yeah, if they were pulled out of the script and movie entirely, it would save about 15 minutes of screen time, but not change the plot. You would lose your love. I guess, yeah, you would lose the, the Brenda Joey deep dive into death anxiety. You would. Could be replaced by the cable repair guy and the high school student. <laughs> you could, you could <laughs> substitute that man. <laughs> uh, and just as a note, I highly doubt the writer considered these things, but 
I don't know, it was, wasn't mentioned, let's just say, in the commentary, but, um, well, just because he's unknowing of it doesn't mean it isn't animating his thoughts or uh, purpose. It, he just that's that, is that uh, age-old age old question that we asked about about the Hitcher. An artist creates an artwork and a viewer, an appreciative viewer, derives certain messages from the artwork. And, and the question is, are those messages deliberately inserted by the artist or can the artist create something from which a, an appreciative viewer withdraws messages, which the artist had no intention of inserting. Or kind of what I'm sort of suggesting is that the artist didn't even know what they were doing because they were a vehicle for a greater orientation that they played out, but weren't aware of. That background information certainly would account for the uneven feel of this movie mm -hmm. if we had a, a writer a director who wanted to do a comedy but studio executives who wanted a zombie movie and other people who wanted to differentiate that horror movie from what sounded like a, a packed field of summer releases in 1988 it would certainly you know zombie movie by committee would certainly account for the messy feel mm. of of this film yeah, no, it's a, it's a it's a, an assembly of marketing purposes and interests and director who doesn't particularly care about the zombie genre and just wants to make a comedy and this assembly of Voltron ideas turns into a, a, a spaghetti mess. And I could see the the doc doc character if he's a a fairly heavyweight character actor. I could see him coming in and ad-libbing some of these lines and sort of requesting or demanding that they be included as a further comedic pressure on the film. I, I have no evidence that that occurred, but it seems plausible. Yet yet another chef surrounding the the pot of this messy stew, if mm. you will. Right, yeah. That's your second uh, soup reference. I'm a little bit hungry this morning. Yeah, so it is maybe a product of being pulled in multiple different directions with the ultimate idea of making money and neither party necessarily feeling the artistic integrity of the Return of the Living Dead series. In fact, at that point, it wasn't even a series. It might have just been a full cash grab. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Sequels, I have to believe, are susceptible to just being motivated by cash grabbing. Which is a shame. Yeah, I mean... It's a little tragedy. We just witnessed a tragedy. I, I feel... Yeah, diminished. Did you like the movie? I did not. I liked the first one. I mean, I I, I didn't like it, but it, it had a it had a charm. It had it had its moments. It had a it had a personality. This movie was, I mean, like for me, immediately seeing the same two characters from the first one, Ed and Joey, like the same physical actors, but in entirely different roles. Mm -hmm. That being left unexplained. You know, that that was immediately off putting for me. I was like, okay, you got you, you just hired the same guys, but they're not the same characters and you're not gonna you're not gonna like make any connection to the first movie. That just immediately put the whole thing off off balance for me and I couldn't really I couldn't really settle in after that. I couldn't really trust it. How can I trust it? <laughs> <laughs> when they were in the car driving around, uh, at one point one of them says that this feels very familiar. Haven't we done this before? Who says that? Uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Ed or if it was uh, Joey, but it might have been Joey. And that, you know, maybe is a 
I, w- I was I was hopeful the, the the military was presented a little bit more forcefully in this movie than the first one. Mm-hmm. In, in the first movie, it's just that colonel guy who waits around for a phone call about these zombies, and then and then and then a mortar shell at the end. Uh, but in this movie, you know, you, you kind of have the convoy and the sort of rockabilly young guys uh, driving. And I, I was hoping for more of a of a of a sort of an action, sort of the army being involved more competently or more forcefully. Mm-hmm. But then all they do is surround the city and 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 hide in the dark. So I, that was disappointing for me too. I was looking forward to 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 more active use of um, military forces against these zombies. There was one scene where there was a backdrop of four or five, two, four or five trioxins barrels. And, uh, and my guess was that there were multiple barrels lost on this journey and they had found four or five of them. And there was one more unaccounted for, maybe more than just one more unaccounted for, but that goofy driver had lost many barrel and Hmm. they were just trying to account for them. And maybe that was the presence as it being more significant because they've been chasing these barrels down for a while. And this is the last one also could be a mechanism for a third movie. Hmm. So, and there is a third movie, isn't there? Yeah, there are, there is a third movie. And, um, yeah, maybe we'll, maybe we'll discuss that on the next switchback. Right. Yeah. Well, this has been quite a fatiguing process, but at some point we'll climb that peak. Yeah. It's on the map. Mm-hmm. Right. It could be around the next bend. Could be. Will be. Well, John. Yeah, you're gonna have some soup now. You're gonna have. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make some soup. Yeah, I've got some some uh, dehydrated stock, and uh, I've got some some uh, cow brains left over hmm. from my last meal, and uh, I've gathered some herbs. Wow. So uh, yeah, I think I'll just make a little soup. Fair enough, my man. Have a wonderful soup. You too. Well, I don't know if you're going to make soup or not.